Today we have with us Dr. Craig Bartholomew. Uh, he is the Professor of Philosophy and Religion and Theology at Redeemer University in Ontario, Canada. Uh, he received his PhD from Bristol University, and he has written extensively on hermeneutics and biblical studies, especially in the area of Old Testament. And uh, Dr. Bartholomew, thank you for joining us today. That's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, the purpose of these library talks is to kind of uh, peel back the curtains for students mm -hmm. and kind of let them see a little bit of the academic life, whether it's we've done some practical things like how to choose a PhD program, you know, what mm -hmm. to consider. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about um, some theoretical stuff with how the, mm -hmm. the intersect of biblical studies and philosophy meets. So uh, since mm -hmm. your dissertation uh, mm -hmm. involved a lot of uh, mm -hmm. philosophy, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how biblical studies and, mm -hmm. and philosophy mm -hmm. uh, meet. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, it's great to be with you here, and I love what you're doing at Southeastern, and I think this idea of these library talks is a very, it's a great idea, so, so well done. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, uh, I don't think every Christian needs to become a philosopher, I should say that first of all. There are some strange creatures like myself who love theory. And so, you know, if you give me theory and philosophy, I'm in my element. I, I just love that sort of work. But I think when you get uh, to seminary level, or if you're doing scholarship, then I think theory starts to play a much stronger role, okay? So, uh, if you just think, for example, about biblical studies, if you're doing serious biblical studies, you will do a whole lot of courses in language studies. Okay, you, you'll do grammar. Uh, sooner or later in your biblical studies, you'll be introduced to literary approaches to the Bible. Then you will encounter questions like, uh, is the Bible history and what is the nature of history? So the minute you, you actually, if you just think of immersion in the disciplines of biblical studies or theology, it's really not hard to see that very close to the surface there's some big issues like what is language and how does it work? Okay, what is history and how would we know, for example, if uh, when the Bible presents events as having happened, how, how would we handle that in terms of uh, the nature of history and history writing? And then, of course, uh, the other thing is that the Bible is, above all else, I don't think it's firstly a history book or firstly a piece of literature. It's firstly a book of God speaking his word to his people in his world. So there's that whole dimension as well. So if you just think about those, what you have done and what I've just done with you, I hope fairly successfully, is I've backed you from biblical studies into... What is language? What is history? How does the theological or charismatic dimension of the Bible fit in with those? Okay, now uh, what you may have realized is I've not only backed you into those issues, I've backed you into the issues of philosophy of language, philosophy of history, and the whole notion of religion or philosophy of religion and how that relates to theology. 
So what a lot of biblical scholars and I think preachers and teachers are simply unaware of is that they're immersed in philosophy, but often they're immersed in it unconsciously. And that's particularly dangerous because when you are immersed in something unconsciously, you can be captive to philosophies of language or philosophy of history or other types of philosophies that may not be uh, Christian. In fact, sometimes they can be distinctively unchristian. So I think uh, there's just a, a myriad of ways in which uh, philosophy is always already at work in the discipline of biblical studies. And in my opinion, the question is not whether you have to deal with that or not. The question is how you deal with that. And one of the tremendous things about the day and age in which you guys are doing your studies is that we live amidst a truly extraordinary renaissance of Christian philosophy. So some of the best philosophers in the world are out there in the open uh, Christian seeking to bring a Christian perspective to fruition in their philosophical work. So you don't have to reinvent Christian philosophy. There are tremendous resources to draw on in order to do your work in biblical studies or theology or if you want to, which I would strongly recommend in philosophy. So that, that's kind of a bit of background, but I'm very happy to have questions or, or whatever. Yeah. Okay, well, who are the uh, Christian philosophers that you were saying, uh, would, would you say that are yeah, doing good work? Yeah. Um, well, the, uh, you know, in the 1980s, uh, Time magazine reported that God was making a comeback in American culture. And it was coming from the strangest place namely philosophy. And the person they fingered, uh, who has turned out to be one of the great philosophers of our day, is the Christian philosopher Elvin Plantinga. Okay? And uh, so Plantinga, I think, is one of the epical ones. I think myself that his inaugural address which he gave when he was appointed to the O'Brien Chair, I believe, in philosophy at Notre Dame, should be compulsory reading for every seminary student. It's a clarion call for Christians to do work in philosophy that is related to our questions and our needs. So Plantinga, uh, if, you, if you're not aware of him, uh, you, you really should be aware of Plantinga. So, you know, his uh, massive work is with Oxford University Press, a three-volume work on epistemology. Let me just pause for a moment uh, and uh, back into what, what I've been asked about. So, uh, this is what some people hate about philosophy. It uses big words like epistemology. Okay, I tell my students, yes, these are terribly big, scary words. You should avoid them at all costs. No, they're big, scary words like washing machine. And so I have my students in class, they have to have a washing machine list. And that's where they put all these big, scary words. Okay, and you don't need to, I have a, a definition of epistemology that I think is the best definition there is of epistemology. 
but I would, wouldn't I? So, <laughs> and let me tell you what epistemology is. Epistemology is about how to go about knowing something so you can trust the results of the knowing process. Let me just repeat that. It's copyright and patented, by the way. I'm going to <laughs> how to go about knowing something so you can trust the results of the knowing process. Now, do you know what that means? There is not a class at Southeastern that you take where there is not some epistemology at work. Unless, of course, and I've never encountered this anywhere around the world, you have a professor who will simply say to you, we do not aspire to reach the truth about our subject in the course we're doing. Now, if some profs were honest, that, do, you, do you get my point? Every class you go to, it's built into the fabric of the class that this is going to get you towards the truth about what you're studying, right? Okay, that means there's an epistemology at work. Do you know what the problem is? Too many profs wouldn't be able to tell you what the epistemology is, and too many students wouldn't know to ask what the epistemology is at work. Uh, the way in which to think about this, and then I must get back to, to the question that I was asked, uh, I, I often say to my students, uh, and maybe I can ask one of you, could any of you tell me what your favorite ice cream is? Okay, mint chocolate chip. That, that sounds like a really good one to me. When, when I first asked students this in Canada, one of them said to me his favorite one was heavenly hash. Do you have that here? I said, oh my goodness, is that legal in Canada? <laughs> and, uh, you know, ten years later, the answer is probably yes. <laughs> it probably is legal in Canada. Now, you know, if you go get your mint chocolate chip, or now imagine that you go and, and you know, it, it's not a cold day, it's a steaming hot summer's day. You're just going to die for that mint chocolate chip. And you get there and, and the guy has the best mint chocolate chip, but he says, look, I'm going to give you an extra scoop or two, so already you're feeling good, but he says, I've got no cones. How would you feel? Well, you know, it's kind of not good, is it? So there's, I always have one student who's obsessive about cones. But most normal people that I meet, they know you need a cone, but they want the ice cream. Okay, so, and uh, this is, I think, what philosophy is like. You do biblical studies because you love the Bible. Okay, but the cone, uh, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, says, in any discipline, Whenever you start asking the deeper and deeper questions, when you get down the cone towards the bottom, you hit the foundational questions. That is philosophy. Okay, so I've just used the example of epistemology. You will not take a course at Southeastern or anywhere where there will not be some epistemology at work, which is very, it's, it's at the deep level shaping the pedagogy. Okay, now if you love chocolate mint ice cream, please continue to love chocolate mint ice cream. Don't become obsessed about cones, that's what philosophers do. But my point just is this, it does impinge on your subject, it shapes it at a very deep level. Now how did I get onto that? <laughs> <laughs>
uh, what we're, was that being asked? We were asking uh, yeah. who are the major Christian okay, philosophers. Yeah. Yeah. So epistemology, Plantinga has done world-renowned work on epistemology. Now, and what Plantinga has done is not just done work. Plantinga is a deeply committed Christian. In the third volume of his trilogy on epistemology, Warranted Christian Belief, which is the one all of you ought to have in your library, he has a phenomenal chapter on two or more types of scripture scholarship in which he defends traditional biblical commentary arguing that you can be epistemologically warranted in assuming that the Bible is fully trustworthy in your scholarship. You don't first have to make the case for the trustworthiness of Scripture. You can be epistemologically rational and warranted in having that in the foundation of your scholarship and working on the basis of it. This is epical stuff, absolutely epical stuff. And then, you know, there's, uh, uh, so, uh, Plantinga, uh, uh, of course, there's the, the one who, uh, at Kelvin College at one stage, Plantinga and Nicholas Voltersdorf, I believe, were often the only two students in third or fourth year philosophy classes. I want such students. Because those two had turned out to be world-renowned. So Nicholas Voltersdorf is uh, also, uh, some of you may know that at the heart of the Enlightenment is a philosopher called Immanuel Kant. Now, Canadians pronounce that name differently. How do you pronounce it? Kant. Okay, yeah. It's usually. You do the same funny thing as Canadians do. And I, I, I can't get my head around that easily. So Immanuel Kant, I shall continue to say, Immanuel Kant uh, uh, is really the seminal philosopher in modernity, I think deeply non-Christian, very dangerous direction in my view. Kant wrote a book called Reason, Religion Within the Bounds of Reason. Do you, do you pick up the significance of the title? So religion is fine, but it must be within the bounds of our human autonomous reason. Waltersdorf wrote a very influential little book called uh, Reason Within the Bounds of Religion, Turning Kant Upside Down. So Kant, Religion Within the Bounds of Reason, Waltersdorf, Reason Within the Bounds of Religion. So these are philosophers now. Now there, there's been a whole string of them. About uh, 20 years ago at the American Philosophical Association, Someone sent out a, a, a message saying, does anyone want to meet and discuss Christian philosophy? Some 70 people pitched up. That group has now become the largest single interest group at the American Philosophical Association. So there's a whole string of names you ought to know about. Recently deceased Bill Alston, uh, very, very significant philosophical work at Baylor University, which of course is the biggest Baptist research university in the world, I think. Uh, you've got people like Stephen Evans, who does phenomenal work on Kierkegaar. And uh, th then there, there are a host of others now. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, secular philosophers have got really frightened by this. You have secular philosophers writing in journals saying, this is really dangerous. You've got this whole renaissance of Christian philosophy so my point is this, 
If you're called to be a philosopher, be a philosopher. If you're called to biblical studies, pastoral work, or theology, be aware that there is a cone to your ice cream. Don't, don't worry, uh, uh, don't obsess about the cone, but make sure you've got a healthy cone that can support the best work in biblical studies uh, 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 or theology. All right, uh, shifting gears a little bit, I told you there are two main questions I wanted to ask. Um, and just uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, theological interpretation of Scripture mm. and what is that and what are the movements because mm. um, uh, there seem to be different schools in that. Mm. If you could talk a little bit about that and where you see it's, it going yeah, okay. in the future. All right, so you know, one of the things that I don't know if people tell you this, but I, I tell my students, whatever discipline you're majoring in, you ought to be able to tell the story of your discipline. Let me just repeat that. Whatever subject you're majoring in, you ought to be able to tell the history of your subject because that will alert you to what forces and ideologies and presuppositions have shaped it to where it is today. And then if, as, as is the case with many of our disciplines, so if you were to ask me, is biblical studies healthy today, I would say, oh my goodness, no. Have you been to Society of Biblical Literature uh, or even uh, ETS lately? I think if you have a very close look, you'll find as a whole, biblical studies is in a, a, a state of disease, not health, okay? So if you're concerned about that, you have to ask, well, how did it get there? And are there other ways we could go that would produce healthy biblical studies? All right, so that's one challenge is, can you tell the story of your discipline? If you're an Old Testament major, can you tell the story of Old Testament studies? It's very important. There's absolutely crucial moments. I'll give you one example. The father of Old Testament or biblical criticism is generally acknowledged to be a German, Wilhelm de Wetter. Okay, some of you will know he did his doctorate on Deuteronomy, connection with the Josianic uh, uh, Reformation and so on. Now, what very few people know, but you ought to know, is how did de Wetter come to this modern critical approach to the Bible which thought the historicity of the Bible was irrelevant? Well, let me tell you what happened. De Wetter studied at the University of Königsville. Okay? And I think he was on faculty there. He attended a series of lectures by their prominent philosopher, Immanuel Kant. And he experienced something of an academic conversion to Kant's philosophy. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to work out how to read the Bible so it fits with Kant's philosophy. Central to that paradigm shift was the view that religious narratives and literature can be useful, but historicity is irrelevant and not important. So, if you want to know how biblical criticism arose, I mean, isn't that fascinating? You know, it's through exposure to a philosophy. And that philosophy, there was no evidence 
uh, accrued that uh, historicity didn't matter. He learned from Kant's philosophy that literature and these other things can be religiously useful, but they don't need to be historically referential. So with one fell swoop, history is chucked right out the window and on goes biblical criticism. Okay, so you have to know the history of your discipline. I uh, uh, would describe the modern history of biblical studies as follows. I think we have experienced four turns and the, I would just alert you to the fact that when there is a new turn, it doesn't obliterate the previous one. It muddies it, but the previous one continues. So from uh, the, the middle of the 18th century through to the really, sorry, late, mid, mid 19th century through to mid 20th century, the turn that dominates biblical studies is what I call the historical turn. It's historical criticism. It's coming out of Germany by the early 20th century. It's dominant in Europe, Britain, and most mainline American institutions. So it's historical concerns. And just for the record, the understandable response of evangelicals was to obsess over historical concerns. Okay, it's understandable. I'm not sure it's recommendable. Because what you do is you let liberals tell you where you're going to do your work. So you're in reaction all the time. Then, so we get into the, the 20th century. When I studied at Oxford uh, 25 years ago, whatever, all that happened was I was inducted into source criticism, form criticism, tradition criticism, and redaction criticism. Those are the main branches of historical criticism. And I was taught how to apply them to the Bible. That was just scientific biblical studies, right? No, no one told me where it had come from, where it was going. That's just science. So, and you're at a prestigious university. So these are the methods. Learn how to apply them. Do the sausage machine thing, and out comes the sausage, and then they will evaluate you on the sausage. Now, in the 19, uh, around the, when I was at Oxford, this, had, this was already in place, but it really only hit, uh, it wasn't reaching Oxford at that time, but uh, from uh, the 1780s, 70s, 80s, so on, this enormous thing took place, a recovery of understanding the Bible as literature. This is what I call the literary term. And this was led by Jewish scholars, and uh, so, so many of you will have heard of Robert Alter's work, but the epical work uh, in the literary turn was done by a literary Jewish scholar at Tel Aviv University, Meir Sternberg, who wrote a book uh, with the title, I believe, The Poetics of Hebrew Narrative. It, it is in a class all of its own. And what that showed was that these historical critics had been a bit naive dealing with the Bible. These texts were crafted as literature. So when an historical critic would say, oh, do you see that doublet? the same sort of story told twice, it must be a different source. A person with a literary sensibility would say, how interesting, this is repetition. We're very familiar with that from literature. This is meaningful. So there was from the 1970s this huge renaissance of interest in approaching the Bible as literature. Now before uh, the implications of that for the historical approach 
could be fully worked out, the postmodern turn was upon us. And postmodernity in the academy really came through literature, literary studies. So uh, just as, you know, the way I envisage it often is that the biblical scholars had really cozied up to the literature people. And so, the, you know, there's a thin wall between the two. And the next minute, all this postmodern stuff was being hurled over the wall, which they embraced very gratefully. And so we've had the postmodern turn in biblical studies where if you go to Society of Biblical Literature, you can do anything with the Bible nowadays. The, you know, you can do, uh, 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 in fact, I'll give you an example. One of the top biblical scholars in Britain uh, came to the University of Gloucestershire when I was there. He's also very postmodern. This is what he told our doctoral students to do. When you want to read the Bible, you should imagine yourself going into this interpretation supermarket. And there are all the cans. There's the feminist can, structuralist, deconstructionist, post-historicist, uh, queer, etc., etc. All the possibilities are there. And you should say to yourself, which reading do I desire to do today? And the second question you should ask, which was the real giveaway one, which reading will sell? Okay, the postmodern. So that we, we're still uh, in, the, in the midst of that, although I think postmodernism is now in decline. Now then, the most recent one, and I'm getting to, to your question, is the theological term. We've witnessed a renaissance, a, a minority renaissance of interest in theological interpretation. Okay. So what is theological interpretation? Well, this renaissance is what I call, as an Anglican, a broad church. It, 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 it sort of gathered momentum all over the place, but when I look around, I'm not sure people know what they mean by it. So Heath Thomas, who you know well, and I edited a book uh, which came out this year called uh, A Manifesto for Theological Interpretation. And I, I define uh, theological interpretation as intentional reading of scripture for the church. Okay, so in my view, uh, the Bible is God's word for God's people in God's world. And I would argue, and I think I would do it in, in pretty sophisticated ways, that any hermeneutic which doesn't make its goal to listen to what God is saying to us today is deficient. So liberals will do anything with the Bible except attend to what God is saying to us through it. And I think evangelicals have often followed that route. They will do their Hebrew analysis and their Greek analysis and all sorts of amazing things, celebrate the fact that they're not liberals. But I don't find a lot of expertise amongst evangelicals in working out how to attend to Scripture with all the rigor we can bring to it so as to hear with power what God may be saying to His people today. And that, I think, is the genius of theological interpretation. That it puts all the resources of biblical studies 
in the context of that telos that the goal is to enable us to hear with fresh ears the sheer power uh, and magnitude of what God is saying through his word. Now there's a lot more that I'd like to say, but you may want to. Okay, well, I mean, we'd love to hear that if you, if you want to go that direction. But who are some of the, uh, if we want to read more, of course, the manifesto that you mentioned mm-hmm. with Dr. Thomas. Um, and uh, who else would you say is in the theological mm-hmm. uh, TIS movement? And maybe even are there different branches within there mm-hmm. uh, to maybe help us get a feel for, for what TIS yeah. is? Yeah, so, you know, there are, there are different branches within it. And uh, it's a fledgling movement. Uh, personally, I think it's one we ought to get involved in and push in the most positive directions we can. So, uh, uh, and uh, just, uh, you know, there, there, there are two things, that, publications that I would refer you to. So, there is a, a multi volume Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible. So if you're interested, I wrote the article on that on theological interpretation. And then I was involved in the Baker Dictionary of the uh, Theological Interpretation of the Bible. So, so those were are, are sort of fairly big. If you want to know, uh, of course, uh, some of you are thinking, well, is this new? Well, of course, it's the oldest way of reading the Bible and the most new. So that's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, it's a kind of, you know, many of you say, well, you know, what could be fresh about this? Well, I, I would like to challenge you on what could be fresh about this. So I hope to have an opportunity to talk to you about this. So uh, uh, the, the modern recovery of theological interpretation, the great father figures are Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So uh, now in evangelical ears, the word saints don't always come to mind when I mention these figures, okay? And many of you, perhaps like me, I'm not a Bartian, but when I went to seminary, we never read Bart, but we were learned how to know that Bart was a heretic, okay? And some seminaries specialize in this. They (laughs) develop the fine smell of a heresy from three miles away. Uh, and then you all congratulate yourselves because you're not that, but you never actually read that. So I learned, uh, and, I, and I think this was uh, that philosopher who uh, was at Westminster, what was his name, uh, who criticized Bart so much? Cornelia uh, Van Til. So, you know, I think uh, I, I hold him accountable for a lot of this, you know. Uh, so we, we learned from Fantil that Bart was a heretic, and so we knew that, and we're so proud of ourselves, uh, but we never read Bart. And it was only much later that I read Bart, and then it just blew me right out of the water. Uh, Bart, uh, on Genesis 1 and 2, he has 130 pages of exegesis. You know, what I do now, whenever I'm, I'm working on Scripture, I consult the index of Bart's church dogmatics. So when I'm working on Job, I don't agree with Bart, but there's large swathes of exegesis. You know, this is, you read our modern theologians, you're lucky if you get any exegesis. 
You know, with BART, you couldn't possibly publish BART without a scripture index. So the, the thing that has really struck me with Karl Barth is the more his theological framework takes hold, the more exegesis he does. And see, I think this is really true to the spirit of Kelvin. Why do you think Kelvin wrote his institutes? Well, you must read the preface. He tells you, Kelvin wrote his institutes to help Christians read the Bible. We tend to think that you read the Bible, then you do systematic theology. Now, there's truth to that. But Calvin actually saw it the other way around. Really good theology enables you to hear the Bible better. So, uh, and see, with Bart, what intrigues me about Bart is the more he theologizes, the more exegesis he does, not the less. And I think, boy, I want that. Now, there's, there's a lot about Bart I don't like, uh, you know, and so I'm not a Bartian, but I think uh, we, we did a terrible misservice. So Bart is a great, now, Bart Dirk Bonhoeffer is another very interesting figure to me, and you know his volume on creation fall, some of you will know his volume. That's when Bonhoeffer turned from a more philosophical theology to really doing exegetical theology, and I love that, because I think the more scriptures engaged, you know, the happier we should be, because that, that's God's authoritative word. Now, with Karl Barth's commentary on Romans, and with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book on creation and fall, his fellow academics had no idea what to do with them. It was a genre they had just not encountered before. Reading scripture in such a way that it speaks powerfully to the day, who would ever have thought? What a weird thing to do. Rich scriptural interpretation that can speak to the realities of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, the Holocaust. Who would have thought that one could have a style of, his fellow academics didn't recognize the genre. And so then theological interpretation moves on to an American, a very, very bright American, who was a Fulbright scholar and went to study under Karl Barth uh, in Basel and tells the story of him and his fellow Old Testament scholars sitting in the front row with their Hebrew Bibles open and they had no idea what Barth was doing. And that was Brevard Childs. And Bart had a huge effect on Childs, which led to Childs attempting to redo biblical studies canonically. Okay? And so the, the, it's through those figures, and then with the possibility that postmodernism has created, that we've had this resurgence of theological interpretation. They're, they're, they're diverse approaches from a, a sort of postmodern type like Walter Brueggemann whose work is significant, but I think very liberal, uh, to, uh, uh, to other types of theological interpretation. And in the manifesto, we've tried to chart uh, a kind of constructive course for theological interpretation.